church, I mentioned uh, last week that over the, the, the Advent season that we're looking at Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 9 uh, that one of our pastors, David, just read that speaks about a king that's coming. Uh, a king that specifically has four names or titles, descriptions that are tagged onto uh, this prophecy of his coming. And, and, and the, the names describe this Messiah, the one who would deliver uh, his people from their sins. And the, the text reminds us, uh, even as you've heard it read, that not only Old Testament prophecy, but, but all of Scripture revolves around this king. All of Scripture revolves around this king with four names. Every passage is either pointing us to him, that he's coming, or it's reflecting back on him, that he came. And, uh, and, and so in passages like this, where written 700 years before Jesus was born, there's, there's details about his life, about his coming, uh, that we see perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. It adds incredible confidence and strength to our belief, to our faith, that yes, he is who he said he was, and the prophets, what they said of him of old has come true, and we can trust that he is who he said he was because it's perfectly fulfilled in him. And, uh, and, and I, can, I can give you a heads up this morning, church, uh, if, 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 if I could, that uh, not all sermons are created equally, right? So all of God's Word is important. We know that it is all uh, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for us. It's effective to the ends that God uh, intended. But certainly not all preaching is, and, uh, and I pray it is. I pray our preaching, whether it's me or Pastor Michael or whoever stands in this pulpit, I pray it's effective. But preaching, the act of, of delivering a sermon, has often been compared to the task of a waiter. Um, the waiter doesn't prepare the meal. The chef does that. The, the waiter doesn't put together the menu or, 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 or put the prices into the menu. The, they, don't, they don't have that task either. The waiter simply takes the meal that's been prepared and brings it to the table and serves up, if the waiter's doing their job right and well, serves up a, a hot, delicious meal to a hungry people waiting at the table. And that's sort of my job. This is God's Word, and we know that it's profitable because He's the one who's written it, and He's the one that's preserved it and prescribed it for us so that we can know Him and walk in holiness. And as a pastor, as I'm bringing this to the table, hopefully, if I'm doing my job well and right, I don't sneeze on it or trip and fall or contaminate it with my own pet peeves or personal convictions or thoughts. Even as Pastor David just prayed that, that even my distractions would be set aside, the things that are in my head right now. And so like I said, not all sermons are created equal. There are some good ones. There are some that are not so helpful. Um, and, and some are, are, are like meals that, that just have a lot of vegetables in them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, you just, just got to get past the broccoli and the Brussels sprouts to get to the good stuff. And, um, and this morning's sort of like that. There's going to be some broccoli at the beginning. And I'm asking you to hang with me and get through the broccoli because the steak is coming. The ribeye's coming. The pork chop is on its way. And at the end, we're going we're gonna to sit down and gaze at the beauty of Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels in, in, in particular as we close this morning, the Gospel as we see it come to a, a culmination and a climax, the pinnacle of all of human history in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is maybe a bit strange at, 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 at Christmas time, uh, but that's the purpose of it all. And so now that you're completely confused and thinking about lunch, uh, we started this series last week and we observed the first title for this coming king, Wonderful Counselor. I told you guys that it was two words in the Hebrew, Pele Yaoletz. And when those two, use, those two words are used together, it means wonderful in that there's, there's no word or words that could describe, articulate how incredible, awesome 
Uh, awe-inspiring someone is. That's, that's Jesus. He's wonderful. And then counselor. He's not just wonderful, but he's a counselor. He's one who provides instruction, uh, guidance, but different from a, a human counselor or a counselor that we would go and see today, which is a good thing, uh, this counselor, the wonderful counselor, the way these words are used in Hebrew is one who gives instruction as one with authority. So, so the, the instruction that he's given, the, the, the words that he's saying to us, it's not advice or coaching like you would receive from a coach or a trainer or, uh, or a counselor today. He instructs with authority. And as he does that, uh, we're able to find true and lasting rest in him. Unlike what we would receive from, from a counselor, which is helpful, it's not permanent, and it's not lasting. It doesn't endure forever. But what we have in the wonderful counselor is because he gives it as one with authority. And so it's important for us. We had to just kind of recap where we were at last week. We, we have to hear his voice and know his voice. We have to be brutally honest with him. We have to trust him and do exactly what he says, this wonderful counselor. Now, implicit in that application from last week, right? Remember the application, be honest with the counselor, brutally honest with the counselor, Consider his call to healing and the change that it may require of you, maybe even some hard change. And then, and then last, our last application last week was do whatever he says. Whatever this counselor brings to you, even if it sounds crazy to everyone else around you, be obedient. Implicit in those application points from last week is this idea that, 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 that there's, a, there's a plan in place, that this wonderful counselor is, is not just acting willy-nilly, but that as Messiah, as the king, the wonderful counselor, he has a plan that from the beginning of time was set in place. He's not, I mean, how, how wonderful would he be if he were flying by the seat of his pants, doing whatever thing came to his mind in the moment, some fickle king that just acted impulsive uh, all the time. No, that's not Christ at all. He has a plan that's been an agenda before the beginning of time, and that's why this king was sent. He was sent to fulfill that plan. Now, I'll start there to remind you, even of the wonderful counselor and the application that we had last week, and the implicit plan that's behind that application, because this morning, as we move to the second title, the name for this king in Isaiah chapter 9 is Mighty God. And we need to understand that this, this king, this wonderful counselor, has a plan. But not just that. As mighty God, he has the power to fulfill, to carry out that plan perfectly. And so I share this, maybe this illustration with a bit of uh, trepidation this morning. As my wife is flying home from Orlando right now. Um, but air traffic control is, is a really, as you can imagine, a really important job. <laughs> It's a really sensitive job with, with a lot of training that's required and a lot of specifics that go into it. And when there's a transition, right, uh, from one controller to another, one person's shift is over and another person's shift is starting, there's a transition period that some call getting the picture. Now, it's probably settling for us to know, especially as my wife is flying right now, that when one person clocks out at, say, 10.15, and his shift is over. He doesn't just stand up from his computer and push his chair in and go and clock out and get in his car and drive home. If the next person's not there, he just thinks, well, you know, they'll take over when they get here. That's not how it works, thankfully. 
Uh, instead, there's this transition period, and, and, and he stays there or she stays there until the next controller comes, and they sit beside them at the screen, at the, uh, the computer, and they, they study, and they, they get a grasp. They get the picture of what's going on on the screen with the different aircraft and their altitudes and their destinations before the other guy or lady can clock out and leave, and we should be thankful for that. Uh, that's getting the picture, that they know what's going on when they sit down in the seat and the other person leaves the seat. And I'll share that this morning because we just made an enormous claim that Jesus, this king that was prophesied about, is mighty God of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I think you need to tell yourself, because I've had some time to do this this week, and maybe you're just reflecting on it now for the first time this week. And so you need to tell yourself, whether you think so or not, that I need to sit here a moment and get the picture. I need to sit here a moment and let this marinate. I need to, I need to get this picture and, 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 and find some points on the compass and the altitudes and the destinations of this truth so that I can hold on to it so I can know what to do with this truth claim, right? Like that's a heavy, heavy statement that a majority of the world, if, if you consider these other major world religions, they don't believe that to be the case, that Jesus is who he said he was and that he's the mighty God. Now, I want to help this morning if I can to give you something as you sit and get the picture of, of, of what this means. I want to give you something to, to hold on to so that you can cherish this truth and, and remind yourself of this. That's the purpose in this sermon series. I want us to see Christ. And I want us to see that in his life, in his birth, and in his life, the fulfillment of these verses, these things that Isaiah was saying about a baby that would be born of a virgin. I want us to see that in Christ. So we're going to get to the New Testament, as I said. But first, I want us to, to, to have three uh, touchstones are points of reference, if we're still running with that analogy of the air traffic controller, three points of reference in the Old Testament that describes this, this mighty God. All right? And if I can, I'll maybe pull back the curtain for a second and let you know how I got here. So you may wonder how do pastors get to where their sermon and their delivering and what they get and where they get it from. So if this is true, and what Isaiah is saying of Christ is that he's mighty God, I sat down at my little fancy, snazzy preacher Bible software, and I typed in mighty to see where else this language has been used in the Old Testament in particular, of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And, uh, and as I did, there were a few that came up, several, and there are many more things that we could say for sure. Unless you want to be here till 3 p.m. tomorrow, I just went with three. So here they are. Observation number one, the mighty God is clothed with splendor and majesty. I see this in Psalm 45, verse 13. It says this, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So that's sort of touchstone data point number one. Number two, the mighty God speaks with total authority. This is Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, the God, our God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He speaks and summons the earth. Data point number three. The mighty God establishes his victory. And this is really Isaiah 9, and this is the prophecy that we've been studying this Christmas season and we'll continue to for the next two Sundays. 
And this is what Isaiah says and goes on to say when you put, and that's why I had Pastor David read the, the whole prophecy there, verses uh, 1 through 7, instead of just 6 and 7, which is kind of the Christmassy part of it that we think about. Because when you put together all that Isaiah is saying in this prophecy, and it really extends all the way back to 7, and there's, there's more prophecy around it, but this particular section, he's saying that this, this mighty God will bring a peace that will not end. All right? You see that right after the, 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 the descriptions of, of this king. And he's going to establish the throne of David and the kingdom of David and uphold it. And that justice and righteousness will not be removed. Like forever, justice and righteousness. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a king that whoever this king is, he's mighty, he's God, and he's going to bring a victory unlike anything we've ever seen. And so I've summarized that data point, if you will. The mighty God establishes his victory. You could add eternal victory. Never-ending victory. So those are our touchstones this morning. My God is clothed in splendor, speaks with authority, and establishes eternal victory. Now, before we jump into the New Testament, I told you that we, we got a little work to do before we get there. Here's the second thing I want us to see. In, in prophecy, and we talked a little bit about prophecy last week. If you remember, biblical prophecy, often I, I gave this illustration of the mountain range, right? As you're driving towards a mountain range, you see it looks like they're in a straight line. But the closer you get, you realize you may come to one peak 30 or 40, 50, 100 miles before you get to that next peak. It just looks like they're in a straight line from a distance. And that's sort of how prophecy works. You get to fulfillment, even in King Ahaz's day, in some way, some partial fulfillment. And then you continue, and as history unfolds, you see that the, the full meaning and the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy was Jesus. I want to give you another thought or, or, or way that we consider prophecy. And, that's, uh, that, and, and maybe you had this thought, even as we were studying last week, I hope you do. It's a good thought to have. I have had the thought myself even this week. I wonder how much Isaiah realized what he was writing about. Right? Has it ever crossed your mind? Like, like, did he realize it partially because that's the part that was going to be fulfilled in his day? Or did he realize it fully? Um, you can imagine the scene, right? Like Isaiah gets home from a hard day, a long day in the office. And he gets home and his wife says, hey, babe, how was your day? As she's sitting there sipping her peppermint latte. And he says, it was a good day. It was a good day. You know, I started writing the beginning of, of Isaiah chapter 9 today. Oh, really? What, what was that about? And he says, well, it was it's about this baby and this child that was going to be born. Well, really? What, what, does that, what does that mean? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't fully understand. It's just what the Lord said to write. So I wrote it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm describing a hypothetical situation there. We don't know if, if that ha really happened. That's fictional. Uh, the, the whole part about the, the peppermint latte, at least. But we know that that's an element of what's happening because when you get to the New Testament, it clarifies that that's the way prophecy worked. Um, if you get to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter, you, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. P Peter's explaining what's happening with Old Testament prophecy. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, Isaiah being one of them, about the grace that was to be yours, those prophets, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, would, when, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the, things that we, uh, that, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you. So you see what Peter's saying there, that Isaiah and the other prophets of the Old Testament, they were careful. 
They were diligent to discern and to record the word of God as it came to them because they understood it was for your benefit, for our benefit today as we're reflecting and reading on uh, those things even now. And that's when someone comes and preaches the gospel to you, that it confirms, it lines up with what they were writing hundreds of years before, and they worked hard at it. Though they didn't fully understand it, though they didn't see it clearly as you do today because, uh, because of, of, of having the, the, the cross and resurrection in your rearview mirror, you, they didn't understand it as fully as you do, but, but they worked hard at understanding and hearing and discerning God's word, the spirit of Christ, the text says, so they could record it for your benefit. And so the thing that we see, even Christ himself, even Jesus himself says that that's exactly what's going on in Matthew chapter 13, verse 16. Matthew 13, 16, Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they didn't hear it. And so why would I share that? Even as we reflect on the use of prophecy this morning. Because we're in a section of scripture where we're seeing prophecy every week this Christmas season. And I want to build on this understanding that we have of how the Lord uses prophecy in our, our lives. But the reason I share it is to show you how privileged you are. How blessed we are to be able to look back and see the cross of Christ. That the cloudy things in the Old Testament have been made clear in Christ. And the mystery of the Old Testament has been made known in the gospel. That's what Jesus and Peter were saying. These things are written to you so that you can look back and cherish and know that this is true. And these things that are happening in the gospel line up perfectly with what happened in the words of the prophets. And they themselves couldn't see it fully, but you can. So in the remainder of our time this morning, I want to take us to the gospels. I want to take us and, and, and help us to see, the, 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 like we did with the wonderful counselor, this mighty God. And, and through the life of Jesus his interactions with people, the things that are recorded in the Gospels, see if there is evidence for us that Jesus is meeting what Psalm 45 said, what Psalm 50 verse 1 says, what Isaiah 9 says about the mighty God. So John's Gospel is where we'll start. You can jog with me through Scripture this morning if you want. You can jot these down and reflect on them uh, later at a, at a different point if you don't want to play Bible drill this morning. We'll have several texts, but... John's Gospel is where we're starting this morning, and even before I read this to you, just know that John is not writing a biography of Jesus. I love biographies. I read a lot of them. He's not writing a biography, though. He's writing a gospel. And the difference there is that he doesn't just want to give you events of Jesus' life to tell a story of someone's life. His purpose is much greater than that. John himself says at the beginning of his gospel that he's recording, recording certain things, right? So if he's a biographer, he's not doing a really good job because he's not giving you a, a good picture of everything that happened. He's writing certain things, certain events, certain sayings, certain teachings, certain observations. And not all of them, uh, and, and not, not everything that happened in Jesus' life, because there wouldn't be enough books or scrolls to hold all of that. But certain things, particular things, John says. And that in selecting those things, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's putting together a gospel, good news, uh, for you that tells, and he tells his purpose, even in the beginning. So that, John says, you will believe. So that you'll believe that he is the Messiah of God, that he is mighty God, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And in believing, John says, that you might have life in his name. So, so, so as we read John's gospel, you see evidence. You see evidence that compels belief that leads to life, right? And so as we jump in this morning, that's what I, my prayer has been for you, for me, for us this, this Advent season, is that we would, we would see evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. 
and that it would compel belief, that would bring joy and life, life to the full. And so, first one, Jesus, the mighty God, is clothed with majesty and splendor. You see what I'm doing? I'm just going back to those Old Testament data points. You say, well, do we see this in the Gospels? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do, friend, of course. You don't even have to get very far in John's Gospel either. In fact, it's his first miracle. You remember that one, right? He's, he's at a wedding, at a wedding in Cana, uh, in, in Galilee. And Jesus' mother is there, and Jesus and all of his disciples, at least to that point, are there. And uh, they're enjoying this festive time, this celebration of marriage, and the wine runs out. And that's not particularly a bad problem if you're at a Baptist wedding. Uh, but in this day, it was, a, it was an incredible problem. It was incredibly shameful. You see that, that all these people were invited to this event, and they didn't have enough to provide for them. It was a disgrace. It would bring mockery and shame. And so Mary wants her son to do something about it, and she instructs the servants Do whatever Jesus says. Do whatever he tells you to do. So he tells them to fill up six water jars. These things are huge. Uh, We're able to see some as we were over in the Holy Land earlier this year. It's crazy to think that that was this year. And uh, up to like 30 gallons of water in these these stone jars. And he tells them to fill them up. And I don't know if you ever noticed that. That's for a purpose. There's a reason behind that. He doesn't want even there to be a, a hint or a possibility that there's something funny going on here, that he's pulling some kind of Houdini magic trick and swapping them out. And so he has them fill them up with water. They know that that's what goes into them, but that's not what will stay in them. Water would not be the contents for very long, content uh, of those jars for very long. And we know the miracle. Jesus turns that water into wine, and not just any wine. The master of the feast is blown away by it and says it's the good wine, the stuff that people usually serve first before everyone's too intoxicated to care or know the difference. And then John chapter 2, verse 11 says this. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Do you hear that language? We're barely two chapters into John's gospel, a gospel that he's writing, so that you will believe that Jesus is mighty God of the Old Testament. And what does Jesus do? (laughs) He shows us that indeed he is manifesting, that means displaying, putting on display, making tangible the same glory, splendor, and majesty that we hear about in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 45. Jesus is doing that. Now Jesus wasn't just doing magic tricks or illusions. He wasn't just doing this for entertainment purposes. Hey, look what I can do. He was demonstrating splendor and majesty. He was putting on display glory like no other person has ever been able to exhibit. What does that mean? And do the other gospel writers share similar things? Do they record majesty and splendor like John does in his second chapter? Well, yes, they do. Luke chapter 9 records a trip that Jesus took with three particular disciples. Sometimes we call them the inner three. Like They're kind of like the, the best buddies, right? Peter, James, and John. He takes these three guys up onto a mountain to pray. And the text says that as Jesus is praying, his appearance and his his face, his countenance was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. You can imagine this scene as you're standing there. Jesus, he's praying. You're not really sure what you're going to do on the mountain, but you know that when God brings people to mountains, he usually shows up and does something pretty incredible. And then all of a sudden, as Jesus is praying, like lightning, he transfigures in front of them. And it's an incredible sight to behold. And you see what he was doing. Jesus is letting Peter, James, and John have a glimpse behind the curtain. 
He's pulling back the curtain, if you will, and letting them taste just a sample, just a glimpse of the glory that he's had from eternity past and currently reigns in right now in this moment. And they were so blown away by it that they didn't want to leave. Remember what they say. Can we set up tents? Let us just set up a tent and stay here in this moment. We don't want to leave. This is too good to leave. We've seen you. We've beheld your glory, your majesty. They didn't. They couldn't stay. There were people in need at the bottom of that mountain, and so they come down. And as they're, not, they're not even all the way down the mountain, and they're met by a man who has a desperate need. And you remember that need, right? He has a son, and the son is possessed by a demon, and that demon is physically harming this child. And just like any of you parents would do, if there's a way, you want to help that child. And so this man had went to the disciples of Jesus, and they couldn't do anything for him. They couldn't, they couldn't help this child. And so the guy comes to Jesus, and he begs him to do what the disciples couldn't do, and that's to heal him, to, to free him of this demon. And of course, Jesus is mighty God. And so he just lays the smack down right there, right? Luke chapter, two, or Luke chapter 9, verse 42 says that while he was coming... Jesus is not even all the way there yet. He's on his way. He's not even there yet. He's just walking up, and the demon shudders in fear, and the boy convulses, and Jesus rebukes the demon and says, get out. And that's exactly what happens, and that's what happens because he had to obey. And then it says this in verse 43, Luke 9, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty, majesty of God. Say, wait, wait, wait. The majesty of God, I thought Jesus just did this. He just came down a mountain and healed this boy or freedom of this demon. But it says the majesty of God is what they're standing in awe of. Yeah, like I said, Jesus is mighty God. And when he, he manifests that glory and that majesty, the only thing for us to do is to stand in awe and say, yes, you are who you said you are. What about the second observation? All right. Jesus, mighty God, is demonstrating that same splendor and glory and majesty that we see in the Old Testament. What about the second observation or data point that I gave you that he speaks with total authority? Jesus, the mighty God, speaks with total authority. The Old Testament says that the mighty God is one who speaks in that way. Where do we see that in Jesus' life? And the story that came to my mind is we're just jogging through the Gospels this morning, the, the, the story that I was, I was studying this week, I thought about over and over and over is the story where Jesus calms the storm, right? You, you remember that one. If, if, if all of his miracles that you could combine and put together, I think this may be the most uh, underrated one that we just kind of glance over and we take for granted. It's also at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We see an account of it in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus and the disciples are on their, one of their first boat trips together. And they're sailing across the lake, and a terrible storm blows up. I mean, an awful storm. If you read the original language, it's almost like a, a hurricane-type storm. And having, uh, again, been there earlier this year, you can imagine how this happens because you're on the sea, and it's really just a huge lake, and, and there's mountains all around. And so you can be in a, a beautiful bluebird day in one moment, having a good time on the lake, enjoying your company, and then suddenly that cloud rolls in, and you see it as it comes in over the mountain, and you're there. And there's nowhere to go. And there's no time to get anywhere. And that's exactly what happened. And this storm is awful. And, uh, and, and as, as you can imagine, they're in the middle of this storm and they're completely wigging out. I mean, they're doing everything. They're fighting for their lives. They're, they've got the bucket brigade going on, throwing buckets over. They're strapping things down and securing their, their cargo and themselves. Whatever you're doing in the midst of a shipwreck, that's what they were doing. And the whole time they're, they're screaming at the top of their lungs because they know they're about to die. And where is Jesus? He's in the bottom of the boat asleep. 
Like you can almost just imagine he probably has a pillow over his head so they're not waking him up with all this commotion, with all their panicking, just wanting to catch a nap. With all this chaos going on, Peter yells out, Jesus, don't you even care? We're about to die and you don't even seem to care. You're asleep. And Jesus stands up and he yawns. He's still a little bit groggy from his nap. We don't know if that's true. He's fully human, so it's very possible. Either way, whether he yawns and is groggy or not, he stands up and he looks at the storm. And the text says, the word of God says, he rebuked the wind and the waves. He looks at the wind and the waves and he says, hey, you, knock it off. (laughs) That's what he says to the wind and the waves. He rebuked them. Like rebuke is what you do to someone underneath you, right? Like rebuke is what you do to your toddler in the back seat. Hey, you, get that crayon out of your nose. Stop pulling your sister's hair. You rebuke. Rebuke is what you do to that employee after they take their seventh break in two hours. Hey, you, get back to work. Don't let me see you take another break. What are you doing goofing off? Like rebuke is what you do to someone underneath you, but not Jesus. You know, he he rebukes the weather. He rebukes the weather. Why? Because he owns it. It's underneath him. He has authority over it. He simply stands up and turns it off with no more effort than you would turn off your TV. You pick up the remote and click, it goes off. Jesus looks at the wind and waves and says, click, you're off. He speaks with authority, total and complete authority. And the disciples say, what kind of man is this that even the weather obeys his voice? And that's precisely the point. He is the God-man. That's what kind of man he is. He is mighty God of the Old Testament. God in flesh. And he speaks with total authority. We could give other examples like Mark chapter 1, verse 21. At the beginning of his ministry, he's teaching. It says they went up to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught, listen to what the text says, for he taught not like the scribes, but as one who had authority. You see the difference, right? The teachers of Judaism, they have a job similar to mine. I kind of described the role of preaching earlier this morning as we were starting. They share the scripture. They explain the scripture. They try to uh, condense it down into a a way that you can understand it and digest it and apply it. That's That's what the teachers of the Old Testament did. That's not how Jesus taught. Jesus didn't simply try to explain what was said. He is the fulfillment of what was said. He is what was said wrapped in human flesh. That's the difference. So when he speaks, it is God's word. He's not just repeating what's been said. He's mighty God and he speaks with total authority. What about the third observation, though? From our our text, our main text this Christmas season, Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus, the mighty God, establishes his victory. That is what we see, isn't it? In Isaiah chapter 9, you see King Ahaz. And in the midst of his fear and his worry with the Assyrians that are about to attack and destroy the nation of Israel, the prophet Isaiah says that there's a baby coming. There's a baby coming that will be born. And the text says the government will be upon his shoulders. Peace will have no end. Justice and righteousness will be forevermore. Whoever Isaiah is talking about, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, he will establish victory like no other victory that we've ever seen, and no one will ever dethrone him, Ahaz. You can rest, because when he establishes his rule, it will be forever. I don't want to assume that this is obvious for everyone this morning, and because it's our joy as believers to sit and reflect on the gospel 
I want us to see this morning that this king's victory comes in a way unlike any other victory I've ever, ever heard of or thought about. You see, this king's victory comes in his death. That death itself is swallowed up in victory as this king dies. And this is the miracle of Christmas. This is the miracle of the incarnation. This is why we celebrate Advent. The baby that Isaiah foretold, he lived a perfect life. He came and was born in a miraculous way, and he lived a perfect life. And though he had done no wrong, he was executed like a criminal in mockery and in shame. And in that execution, he was trading places with you and with me, with sinners that had rebelled against a holy God. And our sin, our guilt, our shame was placed on his shoulders. Just like it says government will be on his shoulders, so was your sin. And at the cross, his perfect life was credited to your account. If you would, but by faith, put your trust in him and repent of your sins. Do you remember what he said? This is where all of this comes together and climaxes in the gospel. Do you remember what he said when they nailed him to a cross and raised him up in mockery and shame? Do you remember what he said before he gave up the ghost, the text says? What he said after they had beaten him as near death as is physically possible. John 19 verse 28 says this, and this is what he said, in case you don't remember. After this, after all of this, after the phony trial, after the beating, after the, 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 the crown of thorns and the robe being put on him and him being beaten to where he's physically not even able to carry his cross anymore, after he was raised up on a cross, nailed to a piece of wood, after this, Jesus, knowing that now all was complete, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge and raised it up on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So the question is, what was Jesus referring to when he said, it is finished, right? Like if, if you've never heard the, the gospel, if you've, never, if you've never seen the death the crucifixion of Jesus, then you may say, well, that's obvious, Matt. His life is finished. That's what's finished. But then what's complete? If you go back up to, to verse 28, it's not as obvious as what is finished. What's been made complete? Oh, it's the victory, friend. That death is defeated in Christ's death. The death of death and the death of Christ. That mighty God establishes his victory through his death. And maybe you have objections in your mind like, really, Matt? How is death victory? If the prophesied Messiah, the one Isaiah uh, foretold that was coming, if he's dead, then it would seem like we've missed it, that there is defeat and not victory. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. His death would be defeat, and would we, we would be fools for sitting here, the, the worst of fools. And worshiping him today, if that's where it ended. But can I remind you today that they took this one, Jesus, off the cross. And they laid him in a borrowed tomb. And they took a stone and they rolled it in front of that tomb and sealed the tomb with it. And they even went as far as to put Roman centurions at the, at the entrance of that tomb. So there's no fishy business. There's no coming in and stealing his body. And it's like, hey, look what happened. None of that. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen. So they put guards there. The Bible says that in three days, his followers returned to that tomb to anoint his body with the traditional spices. But what they found when they returned to that tomb changed every facet of human history. 
since we're in John, his gospel continues in chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we're going to finish reading this, but I have to stop. Because you need to know who that is. The one, the other disciple that it speaks about is, is John. He's the one writing this. And so it's just incredibly interesting to me. I find it almost, well, it is funny to me. That in the four accounts that we have of the greatest news in human history... John, the writer of this one, speaks about himself in the third person and even goes on to say that he's the one whom Jesus loved. A little bit of a humble brag there, yeah? It gets even better, though, if you continue in verse 2. It says, And Mary said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, again John, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Again, you got to love the opportunity that John takes here to brag about whooping Peter in a foot race. Like, just got to let you know, I beat him to the tomb. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded and placed by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first... Also, just in case you missed it the first time, Peter don't want this smoke. He ain't got nothing on me. I dusted him. I left him in his, in his tracks. Like, foot race, me. I beat him. That disciple saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And then verse 14, the crux of all of human history. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Oh, church, this is why death is defeated. This is why this death, the death of Christ, is not our defeat, but it's the opposite. This resurrection proves that he's making all things new, that he's healing brokenness, that he's cleansing ugliness, that he's putting together those things that were broken. He's established his victory, and we see it in an empty tomb. That there is nothing that could come against us in this world that he's not conquered. And that when Isaiah is talking about something that he didn't yet fully understand and realize, and he, and he describes this king and how government would be upon his shoulders and peace will have no end, he's talking about an empty tomb that he didn't even know about. He's talking about how we'll, we'll reign and rule with him in perfect righteousness and justice forever. Why? Because death has been defeated. And when you can defeat death, there is no end. There is no end to this king's reign. And he's showing us that the sacrifice on the cross has been accepted. Victory is complete. It is finished, church. That's what we see in the cross and in the resurrection. And so as we wrap up this morning, we need to just sit in that a moment. Like the new air traffic controller that's coming onto that shift, we, we need to get this picture because it changes everything. It changes our perspective on tomorrow and next year and the things that are inevitably going to happen in 2021 that are going to be hard and difficult. It changes it all. 
that the child Isaiah prophesied about is not a normal child. He is God in the flesh, mighty God. And greater than calming winds and waves and greater than turning water into, into wine or greater than restoring sight is the reality that this God, mighty God, put on flesh and he came and lived a perfect life and he allowed his creation to kill him so that he could bring you forgiveness and bring me forgiveness. But death was not the end. The mighty God marched out of the tomb in three days and conquered death forevermore so that we can live eternally with him. This is precisely what it means when the text says that he is mighty God and that he establishes his victory, eternal victory. So the question for us this morning as we wrap up and as we conclude is this, have you given your life to the mighty God? Have you come before him with the only thing that you have, which is brokenness and sin, and said to him, God, would you forgive me? I give you my life, I repent of my sins, and I trust your son's death on the cross, that it was in my place, that in my place he stood condemned and bore the wrath that I deserved. You can do that right now. You can do that today. And for the first time ever, this Christmas will mean more because you know the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the one who came in your place. Let's pray together. God, your word is good. And we want to stand in that for a moment, that you are mighty God. And you didn't account, you didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. And you came to this earth and you, and you lived a perfect life and died in our place. And then you conquered death. King Jesus, I pray that we would see in you, Jesus, the fulfillment of all that was said of old through the prophets like Isaiah. And that this Christmas, as we look at nativity scenes and a baby in a manger, innocent, meek, and mild, that we would understand that baby to be the king of the universe who would give his life for ours. Help us to be so moved and captured by the gospel that everything else fades and grows strangely dim. Christ be exalted in our hearts. God, if there's one here this morning that's never trusted you, I pray today that right now you're drawing them to yourself. That whatever hesitations they have, whatever doubts they have, whatever evidence they think they still need, that God, you would overcome that by the power of your spirit and birth repentance and faith in their heart. We give you ourselves again, King Jesus. For every person that's a believer here today, send us out with this news, the greatest news in all the world, to live as your ambassadors. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.